we see nightmares as a sign of a broken mind, a sign of being unspiritual, a sign of somebody who is beyond the pale wounded. Absolutely not. Nightmares are completely normal. They're a sign of a fully healthy and functioning psychology. And there's even research, I'll just mention some of this, that shows nightmares are actually a prerequisite to healing. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Valley podcast. And, you know, I like bringing on fascinating people. And there's this one guy, every time I bring him onto the podcast, it is a riot of wisdom and laughs and just mind-blowing ideas. His name is Charlie Morley. He is the man I consider to be the leading instructor in the world in the unique field of lucid dreaming. This isn't just me. I discovered Charlie seeing him speak at an event in New York, led by Mia Koning, who is a comedian, entrepreneur, and also a woman who runs a remarkable show and she brings on leading speakers. And I was blown away by seeing Charlie on stage. So I went up to Mia and I said, you are really deep into lucid dreaming and you've read all of these books on lucid dreaming. What made you choose Charlie? And Mia said, Vision, I've read close to 10 books on lucid dreaming, but the one book that really resonated with me was Charlie's book. And so he's the person I decided to bring onto my show. Now, that was enough for me. I got to know Charlie. I put him on stage at Mind Valley University in Croatia, blew the audience away. I went on to sign a deal with him. And Charlie's Lucid Dreaming program is now officially part of Mind Valley membership. If you're a Mind Valley member, you can type in Lucid in your app or Mind Valley Home on your desktop, and you'll be able to jump into Charlie's Lucid Dreaming program. It's a truly remarkable program. And it's remarkable because Charlie is just so engaging and so unique in how he, he teaches this stuff. So I'm excited to have Charlie back on the podcast, but today we're not going to talk about lucid dreaming. We're going to talk about ideas from Charlie's new book, Wake Up to Sleep, Five Practices to Transform Trauma and Stress for Peaceful Sleep. And I want to be honest here, I, I brought on Charlie because lately this past month, I've really been having sleep issues and I don't fully understand why. I don't feel overstressed. I know I'm going through a really busy time at work, but I'm waking up 10, 20 times in the middle of the night. I don't take caffeine after two. I have an aura ring. I'm doing everything that is recommended, but this lack of sleep just emerged into my life. And I'm a little bit worried. I want to end it before it gets bad because I just want to hit the pillow, go to bed and know that I'm going to wake up when my alarm clock rings. So I'm so excited to have Charlie here. And if you are having difficulty with sleep, if you in particular have trauma or stress that is keeping you up, that's keeping you on the edge, you are in the right place. So Charlie, Molly, welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. Thank you so much, Vishen. It's a pleasure to be here. And always, I'm ready to enjoy and to share as much as I can. Beautiful, Charlie. So firstly, give us an update. You've been in the podcast multiple times. You have so many fans here. What's been going on with your life? I've been seeing you everywhere. You on Star News recently. The whole energy of what the book is based on, which is essentially these workshops that I've been running for military veterans for the past six or seven years, has had such an impetus behind it. You know, like some projects, the universe is just green lighting it. Like right. everywhere, strange synchronicity, people providing funding, money coming out of nowhere to support the project. It's really one of those. 
And I think it's that's happening because it's a really beneficial project. And I think because it has helped already some of the most traumatized populations serving military and military veterans, it's got kind of a good karma around, it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, everything for the last few years has been around this book, as well as the lucid dreaming. And the main thing to say is when I decided to transfer what was essentially a six week course developed for military veterans into this book, I made the naive assumption that I would need to dumb down the techniques for a civilian population, because I made another naive assumption that military trauma and stress was way worse than the everyday stresses of of life. Absolutely incorrect. Trauma is trauma, whether from a military war zone or a familial war zone. And there are so many people who are dealing with high levels of stress or even trauma from their childhood, from their past, from their familial upbringing, which is affecting their sleep. And these practices, yes, they are military-grade practices. They have worked for for serving military and and veterans and personnel, but they are absolutely applicable for everybody in everyday life. Because to be honest, whose stress levels haven't been elevated in the last 18 months? We've been in a global pandemic. The rates of sleeplessness and anxiety around sleep have skyrocketed. Levels of anxiety and depression have gone through the roof too. And we know there's a direct link there. It's very unlikely if you're working with anxiety and depression that you don't also have some problematic sleep and vice versa. Sleep is the golden chain that ties health together. If you can sort your sleep, health comes naturally. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful quote. So today we're going to be talking about how to transform stress and trauma for peaceful sleep. Charlie, let's get started. So the book is based on a five-step protocol. I just want to kind of outline it, then we can go into detail with whatever you think is interesting to chat about. So the five steps, the first foundation of this protocol is sleep awareness. And by that, I can sum it up by saying, become your own sleep tracker. Now, you mentioned, Vishen, you've got an aura ring. Okay, aura rings are pretty good. They are they're the best of a bad bunch. But still, an aura ring is only about 80% accurate. And many of the Fitbits that people have got, they're kind of 50, 60, max 70% accurate. So I ask you to become your own sleep tracker. How? Learn how sleep works. Learn the different stages of sleep. But crucially, learn how stress and trauma affect each stage of sleep individually. So the first pillar, the first foundation is based on knowledge is power. Empower yourself with the knowledge of how you sleep, because to be honest, how can we even dream of making changes to the third of our life we spend asleep when we don't know anything about it? So that's the first step. Learn about how we sleep. And by that, I mean things like being aware of the fact if you're in a high stress situation or you've experienced trauma, it is very normal that when you enter the hypnagogic state, which is that state of mind when you're just passing into sleep like that, you're starting to black out, you're starting to move into sleep. The brain moves from the left brain hemisphere of the waking state to the right brain hemisphere of sleep and dream. And when that happens, something called the egocentric preference system switches off. Now, the egocentric preference system is the part of your mind that keeps out unwanted thoughts. So every time you have like an inappropriate thought, boom, it keeps it out of conscious awareness. A prejudice thought, it keeps it out. A traumatic thought, it keeps it out. So we need it, right? But when we go to sleep, that switches off. So there's often a moment when you're in the hypnagogic where these intrusive thoughts can pop up and suddenly the person who broke your heart, boom, they're right up there. Or the traumatic thing happened, boom, it's right up there. And just knowing how that works and having the neurological explanation for how it works not only reduces the frequency of that occurring, but if it does occur, people can go, oh, no wonder. And as I always say, and I think I say this in the Mind Valley Quest, fear and fascination cannot exist in the mind at the same time. Fear and fascination cannot exist in the mind at the same time. So if you can move from a state of, oh my God, I'm so scared. Why am I having these flashbacks to, 
fascinating. It's just like he said in the book, I'm having a little bit of a stress flashback here as I'm falling asleep. We move out of fear and out of fear response, we can then fall asleep. So the first pillar is looking at that sleep awareness. The second pillar is rest and relaxation. We think about wakefulness and sleep. There's something in the middle called rest. There's a bridge there. But many of us go from full wakefulness. I'm doing my emails. I'm checking Instagram. I'm doing things, putting my family to bed, sorting out everything. And then we try and go to sleep. We miss that bridge of rest. So we need to learn to not only create a bridge of rest before sleep, but know that good sleep begins not half an hour before bed. Good sleep begins during the day. And it's all based on something called parasympathetic drive. This is like the neurological basis of how deep rest leads to good sleep. So imagine, in fact, you might have one. Have you got a Tesla? Have you got an electric car? I have a bicycle. I don't own a car. Okay. I'm going to use the Tesla example here anyway, because the bicycle doesn't work, but well done for being so eco-vision. Um, let's imagine you've got this Tesla electric car, right? And you've got the battery that charges up. There's something called parasympathetic drive, which I want you to imagine. It's like an electric car battery for relaxation. And every time you do something relaxing during the day, zip, you charge up that battery. This is why at a very basic level, people tend to sleep better when they're on vacation, because during the day, they're probably doing less stressful things and more relaxing things in everyday life. So parasympathetic drive is what is required to make you fall asleep and stay asleep at night. So the first thing we need to do for good sleep is learn how to ramp up our parasympathetic drive. How? do really relaxing stuff during the day. So there's something called NSDR, which is the scientific term for non-sleep deep rest. And this is essentially a state of often lying down meditation. So you're not quite asleep. It's not the same as a nap, but it's real deep relaxation. So you're lying on the sofa, you're lying on the floor. Maybe you're doing a yoga nidra or a guided meditation. If you can do that during the day at any time for 20 or 30 minutes, that's like charging that Tesla battery of relaxation for a good 30 minute charge so that when you go to sleep at night, it is easier to fall asleep and you're more likely to stay asleep for longer. So, so this goes way beyond sleep hygiene tips. You know, so sleep hygiene is about changing the outer environment. I'm talking about changing your biology. So Charlie, this is fascinating because I thought, so would taking a nap count as that? Napping has different benefits. So napping is for almost all of the population. Napping is good for you. 10 years ago, the jury was out. Now the jury is in. We know it's good for you. However, there are two parameters you need to make sure you hit. Make sure your nap is under 90 minutes and make sure your nap ends, crucially, six hours before your intended bedtime. Uh -huh. So if you intend to go to bed at midnight, make sure your nap finishes at six. That's due to something called um, sleep pressure, which is the buildup of a certain hormone in the brain that basically makes you feel tired. It takes about five or six hours for that to build up. So if you have a full-on nap and go to sleep, takes yeah, a while to build that up. Does napping recharge that battery, that Tesla battery for sleep? Well, it doesn't just recharge the battery. Napping, you get all the benefits of sleep. You give people eight hours sleep, and then you give them mental acuity tests, which basically you check their brain, you get them to take written tests, see how well their brain is working, right? And you log that. Then you give them four hours sleep, and you wake them up, you check how their brain's working. Of course, their brain's working terribly. They've only had four hours sleep. Later that day, you give them a one-hour nap, so still, they've only had five hours sleep. You give them a one-hour nap later in the day, and their mental acuity levels are the same as after eight hours sleep. That is how powerful a nap is. So anyone who's lying in bed, and like when I used to have insomnia, the main thing was, oh, tomorrow is a write-off. Tomorrow is not a write-off. Even if you only got three or four hours sleep, 
If you can get a cheeky one hour nap the next day, you can boost your levels of mental acuity, base your brain function to the same as an eight hour nap. That is amazing. Wait, that wait, is how powerful. That's fascinating. So if you don't get enough sleep, okay, yeah. you're saying you could boost your cognition levels. Yeah. If you get a, did you say a one hour nap? One hour nap, you boost your cognition level to the same rate as if you had had eight hours sleep. Wow, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Nothing is so good for you. Okay, so, so this is an important thing. So if we're having a sleepless night, because sometimes I, I'm guessing people listening might experience this as well. I wake up at five and I just cannot go to bed. I can't go back to sleep and mm -hmm. I'm scheduled to wake up at seven and I'm forcing myself to just lay in bed. Is it better? Because I'm afraid that if I don't get my additional two hours, I'm not going to be able to function at work. Yeah. Is it better to just get out of bed, go do whatever I need to get done and then take an hour nap during that day to compensate? You got two options there. Definitely don't stay in bed trying to fall asleep. You know, my meditation teacher defined insomnia as the process of trying to fall asleep, which is a beautiful right. statement. So if you're trying to fall asleep, don't. You got two options. One is to wake up and then schedule in later that day, a one hour nap. And then that kind of ticks it off your brain. Look, I'm going to schedule in that one hour nap. Then I'm all good. I'm back to my eight hours. Or use that time to practice non-sleep deep rest which is essentially lying down using a yoga nidra track. Again, all the yoga nidra tracks, which is a form of lying down meditation where you basically meditate in the hypnagogic. They're all on that web link, charliemorley.com, wake up to sleep, all these free links to that. So then at least you're not trying to fall asleep. You're using that, that time for deep rest and relaxation. Or even better would be, I've woken up at five. I'm going to do half an hour of non-sleep deep rest, play a yoga nidra track through my headphones, and also schedule in a one, one hour nap for later that day then you're really nailing it. Amazing. But know that not all is lost. Right. That's fascinating. Okay, so the first point is turn fear into fascination, right? Yeah. When the stress comes up, go from fear to fascination, understand what's going on in your brain, and that's enough to override it. Now, this idea reminds me of something that happened with me and Stephen Kotler. So Stephen Kotler, incredible writer, his program, The Habit of Ferocity, is part of Mind Valley membership. So uh, many of you members have probably checked out Stephen's program. And we were at A-Fest, which is a Mind Valley festival for our members. And this was in Jamaica. And this mm -hmm. A-Fest was an exploration of altered states. Now, being in Jamaica, and since psychedelics are legal there. I can see where this is going, Vishen. Yeah, Stephen Kotler passed me a joint, completely legal. I don't normally smoke marijuana, but I smoked that joint. And all of a sudden, I got paranoid. It was in the middle of a party, this incredible party raging for all our members on a beach in Jamaica. And I started freaking out. I started wondering, oh my God, what if they kill the electricity? What if the cops come if we make too much noise? What if people aren't really enjoying themselves? And I was just getting agitated. And then Kotler came up to me and he said, Vision, you don't seem to be enjoying yourself. And I said, I'm worried. I'm concerned. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the molly. That's the marijuana. Let me tell you how to get rid of that. And then he explained to me, because Stephen Kotler studies neuroscience. He said, look, mm -hmm. it's activating the, the part of, the, of your brain that is super alert. It's the part of your brain that's watching out for threats. And since the they are no threats, there are no lions leaping to eat you, you are creating imaginary threats. But as soon as you understand that it's activating this part of your brain, watch, the fear will disappear. Mm. And as soon as he gave me that explanation, the paranoia disappeared, the fear disappeared. And now every time I smoke a joint, which is not frequently, I'm, I'm not a big marijuana fan, but when I do, I no longer get paranoid. And so- yes. I get fascinated. Fascination removes the fear. That's the key idea number one. Precisely.
and it works with sleep. It works with, in fact, it's interesting you mentioned that because the part of the brain that I think he was referencing is probably what's called the amygdala, which is the threat yes, center amygdala. in the brain. Yes. And interestingly, after a night of insufficient sleep, so like four or five hours, your amygdala is 60% more reactive than usual. So you know the day after you, you had a shit night's sleep and you feel like everyone's pissing you off. Like, is everyone just super annoying today or what? Your perception of annoyance is 60% higher than usual. However, not all is lost. When you have a nap or a period right. of non-sleep rest, you reduce amygdala function back down to, to zero. That is amazing. That is amazing. Okay, so the first one is turn fear into fascination. The second one is get non-sleep rest throughout yeah. the day. So NSDR, non-sleep deep rest, is a term coined by Andrew Huberman, who's a professor at Stanford. That God, he'd be great for Mind Valley. He's really into yoga nidra. So nidra means sleep and yoga means union. So yoga nidra is a form of lying down meditation where you're intentionally in the hypnagogic. So you know if you're trying to do your mindfulness some days and you're so tired, you get the nodding dog kind of falling forward. You're, you're going, oh, I've got to, got to stay awake. Don't go in the hypnagogic. Yoga nidra is brilliant because it says, I require you to be in the hypnagogic state to do this practice. So he loves it, but because he's a scientist, he's kind of scienced it up and he calls it non-sleep deep rest, mm -hmm. which means you can study it scientifically. You don't have to have woo-woo words like yoga, but essentially it's about parasympathetic drive. Like I've done yoga nidra retreats where each day you're doing maybe five, six, seven of these half an hour yoga nidra sessions. And then you go to sleep at night and you think, I'm not going to sleep, man. I've just been lying down all day. Like I haven't wasted, I haven't consumed any energy, but you sleep like a baby because right. you haven't That's been amazing. napping six times a day. You've been in non-sleep deep rest for six so times this, a day. So, so NSDR drive is charged. So meditation or sitting down in a sofa counts as NSDR as well, right? Not quite mindfulness. So mindfulness obviously has a whole range of benefits, but actually for non-sleep deep rest, you need to be in the hypnagogic. Because when you go into the hypnagogic, you move into alpha and theta. It's deep rest. So basically yeah. it's not that you're watching TV, but deep meditation, like the silver method which gets you to alpha or theta would count as Precisely. NSDR. Precisely. Got it. Right. So the silver and method meditation would get you would, there. Yeah. Mindfulness meditation is great for kind of dampening anxiety and strengthening the prefrontal cortex. But as far as sleep goes, like in the book, the one thing that is conspicuously absent is standard mindfulness meditation. Over 21 practices, all of the mindfulness based, but there isn't anywhere where I ask you just to sit because in my other books, I have loads of mindfulness stuff, but in this one, it's not so good for sleep. And also it's not, not that it's not so good for sleep. It's not as good as other methods for right. sleep. And also if you're working with trauma, and I should make this point, if you are working with trauma, it's not a good idea to ask someone to sit alone in silence for 10 minutes. That's like a one-way ticket for those demons to arise. Right. Far better right. say, hey, lie down, put a blanket over you. Let me guide you through the headphones. There's a big difference mm -hmm. being guided, you know? yoga nidra stuff on headspace and i'm sure you there's yoga nidra stuff in my in my quest actually some really beautiful ones right amazing so now let's go on to idea number three so the third foundation of mindfulness of dream and sleep is breath work and i'm really excited about this because i only really got into breath work like three years ago and since then i've done like level two teacher training with breath body mind i've studied coherent breathing with interviewed stephen elliott done all this breath work stuff done wim hof stuff as well the quickest way to change your neurological state is through your breath. Fact, the quickest way to change your neurological state is through your breath. Why? The brain has the lungs on speed dial. Think about it. If your lungs stop working or there is an obstruction in the airway, the brain needs to know about it quicker than any other part of the body. So over millions of years of evolution, 
the brain has prioritized signals from the lungs above all other. If you were to do this and don't do this, Vishen or anyone else, a couple of hundred people who are tuning in, if I were to ask you to do this for five minutes, <gasps> you would eventually go into a panic. You would actually have a panic attack. You wouldn't be able to stop it because eventually the brain would go, I'm receiving so many panic messages of respiration from the lungs, I should move into panic mode. However, if you did the opposite, and this would be a good thing to do for the next five minutes, if you went, ah, ah, longer exhale than inhale, and also with an audible ah, which creates uh, uh, something, well, it doesn't matter, but it creates an ujjayi breath, which is a certain uh, breathing method there, you will move into relaxation response. So you could be watching a horror movie, but if you are breathing in that way, the brain goes, I don't care about the horror movie. I care what the lungs are telling me. So the quickest way to change your neurological state is through the breathing. It turns out, and you, Vishen, you want to love this if you haven't seen, heard this before. It turns out there is an optimal human breath rate. When I first read this, I was like, oh, fuck off. Go, we're so different people. Come on, there's not an optimal human breath rate. For 90% of the world's population, there is an optimal human breath rate. It is exactly 5.1 breaths a minute, but let's call it five breaths a minute. When you breathe at five breaths a minute for at least three to four minutes, that's when it starts to click in. And you can see this on a graph. The electrical rhythms of the brain, the heart, and the lungs become synchronized. So you see it on the graph. They're all over the place. You start breathing at five breaths a minute, which is slow. I'm talking breathing in. Two. Three. Four. Breathing out. Two. Three. You know, way slower than usual. But if you breathe like that, about three or four minutes, the electrical rhythms of the heart, brain, and lungs become synchronized. Your heart rate variability becomes in perfect form. And to quote uh, Dr. Richard Brown from Columbia, assistant professor of psychiatry, everything that can be measured in the lab becomes optimized after five to 10 minutes of breathing at five breaths a minute. And the race of breathing at five breaths a minute is colloquially known as coherent breathing. Coherent mm -hmm. breathing. Now, people might be saying, what about that other 10%? I said 90% of the world's population, the optimal breath rate is five breaths a minute. If you are well over six foot tall, you might want a slightly slower breath rate, maybe four breaths a minute, 3.5. It's to do with the distance between the lungs and the extremities, actually. But for the vast majority of the human population, breathing at five breaths a minute, everything that can be measured in the lab becomes optimized. You might think that breathing at five breaths a minute is incredibly slow because nowadays the average American breath rate is 15 to 20 breaths a minute. It's about uh, 17 breaths a minute. That is freaking fast. And we have only been breathing that way in the last 20 to 30 years. The average American breath rate in 1939 was 4.9 breaths a minute. Our grandparents breathed 70 to 80% slower than we breathe today. Why is nobody talking about that? You know, I wait, did a press. Wait, wait. that's my note. In 1939 was five breaths per minute. 1939 was uh, 4.9 breaths a minute. In the 50s, in four, uh, 1950, it jumps to about 5.6 breaths a minute. Even as recent, well, as recent as the 80s, I was born in the 80s, right? 1980, the average American breath rate was 7.8 breaths a minute. What the hell has happened in the last 40 years to more than double the average breath rate? Perhaps the same thing that has doubled the rates of obesity, of heart disease, of many cancers, of dementia and Alzheimer's. Could there be a link? Almost certainly. How am I backing that up? Anytime you breathe quicker than 10 breaths a minute, you are activating the fight or flight system, which leads to the audacious claim that I'm making. 
that the vast majority of the world's population alive today are in a constant state of fight or flight activation simply because of the way they breathe. Now, what's so bad about being in fight or flight? Well, from a psychological point, it, point of view, it means we're constantly on the lookout for a fight or a fleeing situation that never comes. But at a biological level, when you activate the fight or flight system, which is called the sympathetic nervous system, you are pushing the accelerator on the car. It's like getting us ready for action. But because there's no action to get ready for, because we're just chilling, but still breathing incredibly fast, it's like having the handbrake on the car at the same time as the accelerator pedal is down. Now, what does that do to the body? The first thing, it releases free radicals. We probably heard about free radicals on moisturizer adverts and stuff like that. And it's kind of right what they say it's doing. Free radicals oxidize uh, the cells within our body. The second thing that happens is every time you activate the fight or flight system, cortisol is released into the bloodstream. And we know that cortisol leads to the buildup of placky acids within the arteries, which make them smaller and smaller, which can lead to heart attacks oh. and strokes. I yes. believe that the vast majority of chronic health conditions can be at least mitigated, if not some breathwork practitioners are saying cured, by breathing much, much slower than usual. If you can do five breaths a minute, go for it. But if that's too slow, then at least six or seven breaths a minute would be great. But breathing at 15 to 20 breaths a minute is way too fast. We're in a constant state of fight or flight activation. And crucially, it is screwing up our sleep. Because in order to go to sleep, you need to activate not the sympathetic nervous system, but the parasympathetic nervous system. You can be doing all of the sleep hygiene tips you like. Oh, I didn't look at my phone for an hour before bed. I didn't have coffee after lunch. I had a hot bath before I went to sleep. It doesn't matter. You can change the outer environment all you like until you learn to switch on the parasympathetic, the rest and digest, you'll be staring. That, that is incredible. I'm just Googling this as you're, as you're talking about it. The current average breath per minute for adults is 12 to 16. That's a lot compared to 1939. Yeah. Um, let me just find that. Actually, no, it doesn't matter. I got those breath rates right. Yeah, we are breathing incredibly fast. So right. there's something called chronic sympathetic activation, which is caused by the way we breathe. We got to slow down our breathing or practice, practice slow breathing for about five minutes a day. Oh, more if you can. For coherent breathing, you, you need to okay. like 20 minutes a day. If you can be doing 20 minutes of coherent breathing a day, two 10-minute sessions or one 20-minute session, the impact on sleep is found within one to two days. Like very quick response. Wow. Why? the parasympathetic drive thing, and also a habit of breathing slower than usual. The other thing I want to mention on breath work is nose breathing. Okay, breathing through your nose is really, really good for you. Breathing through your mouth is pretty bad for you. Really? Breathing through your I nose, you've got a three-layer filtration system, right? So you've got the hairs in your nose, you've got the mucous membrane, you've got cilia, which are these little microscopic hairs. They're basically filtering out debris and stuff. So that's one good thing about nose breathing. The second thing is breathing through your nose, air conditions it. The nose will either heat up or cool down the air as it enters into the lungs, making it more palatable and allowing more air to come in. So although it feels like, you know, you're doing exercise, right? You want to breathe through your mouth. Although breathing through your mouth brings in more air, it doesn't bring in more oxygen. This is a very interesting point. When you breathe through your nose, nitric oxide is released into the bloodstream, not nitrous oxide. That's the kind of stuff. That's laughing gas. That's what you might have alongside your marijuana spliff if you're, if you're at a party. But nitric oxide expands the blood vessels. So breathing through your nose brings in more oxygen than breathing through your mouth. Also, mouth breathing is there are many dentists in America who believe that mouth breathing is one of the largest causes of teeth decay 
on a par, on the same level with sodas and fizzy drinks, because breathing through your mouth leads to build up a bacteria and stuff and gives you bad breath. And so one of the things in the book, and this is quite extreme, but I want to mention it because it's an interesting thing. Look into the potential of mouth taping when you sleep. Now, I'm not talking about a big bit of duct tape, like some BSDM kind of sexual thing over your mouth. I'm talking about a tiny strip of surgical tape down the midline of your lips, just like that. Very easy to break. You open your mouth and it'll break to encourage nasal breathing for at least the third of your life that you're asleep. I found that when I mouth tape, I need between half an hour to 40 minutes less sleep than I usually do. So I'll wake up about 30 minutes to 40 minutes before my alarm clock. Why? Because the quality of sleep you get when you breathe through your nose is far better because you have an oxygenated bloodstream. You're getting in a correct amount of air. You're breathing slower because, of course, you can't make these sharp, shallow breaths when you breathe through your nose. It takes us, you know, slightly more effort to breathe through. Breathing through your nose is really good for you and breathing much slower than usual is really good for you. Fascinating. Okay, so that's number three. Let's go yeah. on to number four. Okay, number four is transformation of nightmares. Now, not just literally transforming the nightmare, but transforming our perception of nightmares. So it has these three crucial reframes of what a nightmare is, and all of these are scientifically backed up. Number one, a nightmare is a dream that is shouting. A nightmare is shouting to draw your attention to unintegrated psychological energy. So we can be thankful for nightmares because they're saying like, yo, here, X marks the spot you know, for the gold or for the daddy issues or for the sexuality issues, whatever it is, the nightmare is trying to help. It's drawing your attention to unintegrated psychological issues. Number two, a nightmare is a sign of a healing mind. When you go through a traumatic experience or a high stress experience, you are supposed to dream about it. Dreaming is like an internal therapy session. Just like when we cut our arm, a scab will appear, right? What is a scab? A scab is a protective layer over the wound which allows healing to occur beneath the surface. That is like the definition of a nightmare. It is a protection over the psychological wound that allows healing to occur beneath the surface. I've heard psychologists when I was reviewing or interviewing them for the book who said, in some cases, I am more concerned when a client after a traumatic experience presents without nightmares than when they do. Because when they're presenting with nightmares, at least I know that the immune response of their own psychology is engaged. You know, you're supposed to have nightmares. Whereas if they're not, I might be worried that they're in a state of delusion or denial or repression, and then the depression that stems from those things. So nightmares are a sign of a healing mind. If you go through something traumatic and you're not having nightmares, it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong. You know, trauma can be integrated in one of three ways, consciously through talking therapy and, you know, discussing it through the conscious mind and mindfulness practices. Number two, intrapsychically which is through our dreams, through our visions, through our imagination, and three, through the body. It can be released through the body through a lot of somatic work. So it doesn't have to come through nightmares. But if you are having nightmares after something traumatic, it's completely normal. And the third one is nightmares are a sign of or an evolutionary tool. I think we've discussed this before when we talk about lucid dreaming. There's a belief called evolution threat theory of nightmares, which says the reason we came to be apex predators on this planet, kind of top predators, was not only our ability to dream, because all mammals dream, apart from the duck-billed platypus and the anteater, nice fact for you, but all animals dream, but humans specifically have the ability to dream not only about past events, which help integrate their trauma, so basically you don't go mad because uh, you're having nightmares to help integrate and have a therapy session around the trauma, but also dream of future scary events. 
So if Cavewoman A and Cavewoman B, Cavewoman A is every night she's dreaming about uh, saber-toothed tigers, how to fight them, how to flee from them, how to throw sticks at them. But Cavewoman B, she's dreaming of chilling on the savannah, or she's, you know, sunbathing outside a cave. Two weeks later, Cavewoman A, Cavewoman B, they meet a saber-toothed tiger. Who's more likely to survive and pass on their gene? Cavewoman A, who has rehearsed her survival mechanisms, how to fight, how to flee, how to hide, right? So nightmares in almost all cases are playing a very important role. But as a society, we have pathologized them. We see nightmares as a sign of a broken mind, a sign of being unspiritual, a sign of somebody who is beyond the pale wounded. Absolutely not. Nightmares are completely normal. They're a sign of a fully healthy and functioning psychology. And there's even research, I'll just mention some of this, that shows nightmares are actually a prerequisite to healing. So they did a study at Chicago Rush University on depression from single effect trauma. So this was people who were depressed after they lost a loved one, or they were heartbroken, or they were in a car crash, single event trauma. What they found was those people in the study who said, I am dreaming, but I'm not dreaming about the traumatic event. They did become free of depression, but at a normal rate. Those people in the study who said, I am specifically dreaming about the person who broke my heart or my loved one who died or the car crash I was in, they got clinically free of depression markedly quicker than those who did not. They came to the conclusion that not only are nightmares a requisite for healing, they can actually help healing to happen quicker. So I know recently, a couple of years ago, when I was heartbroken and I was having all these dreams about the heartbreak, yes, it was fucking horrible. You know, nightmares will never be fun. They are a bitter medicine, but they are a medicine. But I knew this research and I knew, thank goodness I'm having these nightmares. Thank goodness I'm transforming the trauma now. And thank goodness that these nightmares will allow me to heal quicker than if I wasn't having them. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I like that line you just said, they are bitter medicine, but they are a yeah. medicine. Yes. That's beautiful. Exactly. That's beautiful. So let's recap. So the first principle is turning fear into fascination. When you yeah. have stress, when you have trauma, when you have something keeping you up at night, try to understand where that's coming from. And I think, Charlie, you summarized it. Could you just do that quick summary again for us, explaining what's going on in our brain? Yeah. So to look at not only the sleep stages, but how each sleep stage is affected by stress and trauma. So we mentioned how the hypnagogic state is a place where often we can have flashbacks, but also looking at things like how the hypnopompic state, which is the state of waking up, can be a state of great insight for many people because the brain is incredibly fresh and clean after the spring cleaning of sleep. Right. But also it could be another time where sometimes you can get these things, the 4 a.m. demons. You ever get that where you wake up after a few hours sleep and you're like, fuck, man, whatever it is you've been dealing with seems so much bigger. That's because the brain's in this natural state of clarity. So again, no wonder that's okay. So it's really about kind of fascination and right. the, the practical there. And I want to leave, give people this is keeping a nocturnal journal which is exactly that sounds, waking up in the morning and writing down, how was my night? So, okay, I went to bed about 11, but I probably got to sleep only at about 1 a.m. I do remember a dream. I'll write that down. I woke up to pee at some point. Then I just couldn't get back to sleep. And then I woke up in the morning and asked myself, how do I feel upon awakening? So by keeping a nocturnal journal, you're not only empowering yourself with the knowledge of how you sleep personally, but you're also creating a benchmark so that when you start doing the other practices, Mm -hmm. you'll see. When I first started the book, I was here getting five hours sleep, whatever it is. And by week two, week three, week four, okay, I'm getting more sleep. I'm waking up feeling fresher. So the first pillar, knowledge is power, turn fear into fascination and keep a nocturnal journal. Now, now the second pillar is getting sufficient NSDR, non-sleep deep rest throughout the day. 
accessing the alpha theta state, the hypnagogic yeah. state. The For at least one, half an hour a day. Or at least half Give an hour a day. 30 minutes of non-sleep deep rest a day. That's enough right. to charge up the parasympathetic drive. Right. Now, the third one, the third one. Oh, sorry. And a question on that one. If we wake up and go straight to meditation, does that count? Yeah. I mean, you got meditation is brilliant. Even if we do it as soon as we wake up, or do, is it better to do meditation in the middle of the day? Meditation is great at any point. If you do oh, it when you first okay, wake it, up, then it's like the, the mind is at its freshest. So it's said to be a really good time to meditate, but also before Perfect. bed is a good Perfect. Now, the third one is breath work. Okay. Slowing down your breath, practicing about 20 minutes a day of slow breathing. Yeah. The That's form. a way to, to, to regulate the nervous system. So right. the non-sleep deep rest is to move you into deep relaxation. Once you've learned how to deeply relax, now you can start to regulate the nervous system. You know, mm -hmm. before a board meeting, you probably don't want to be lying down doing NSDR, but you do want to be doing five minutes of coherent breathing. Right. Now, the fourth one is understanding nightmares. Yeah, and, so uh, transforming the perception of nightmares. And then there are a lot of practices to do there too. We've got a certain, another breathing practice that's really good for nightmares called four, seven, eight breath. Another one called alternate nostril breathing, uh, which can prevent a panic attack while you're in it, actually. Very interesting. And a practice right. called circle of protectors, where you fall asleep, imagining that you're surrounded by protection. Perfect. And then now we come to the final principle. Yeah, which is lucid dreaming. Right. So for the vast majority of people, nightmares are good they're a sign of a healing mind it's like your inner therapy session however if people are working with very high levels of stress or if they have clinical ptsd sometimes the healing capacity of the nightmares is negated why because of the elevated levels of noradrenaline which in america is called norepinephrine i think but i'll use the english term uh, noradrenaline noradrenaline is present in the brain at all times apart from two and a half hours every 24 hours when you dream. Why is noradrenaline removed from the brain when you dream? To allow you to dream about threatening experiences or past traumas and not get re-traumatized. This is how you can dream of this, right? But in people who are experiencing high levels of stress or trauma, their level of noradrenaline is so high that by the time they dream, the brain isn't able to completely clean away all the noradrenaline. So when they have nightmares, they can be re-triggered and re-traumatized by those nightmares or anxiety dreams. So for those people, you need a bit of a stronger medicine. And that leads to lucid dreaming. Because once you have a lucid dream, a dream where you go, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. Imagine if you apply that to nightmares and imagine what it does to your stress hormones. I'm in a really stressless, the veterans, right? I'm in a really stressful nightmare. I'm back in Iraq. I'm back in Iraq. Oh, I'm dreaming. Right. Phew. Look what just happened to my stress hormones there. And that is the biological basis of why lucid dreaming is such a powerful intervention for nightmares. It drops the stress hormones and has a powerful deconditioning effect on the mind. As you go, oh, I'm not really back in this threatening experience or event. I'm simply dreaming about it. Now, here's something to share, which hasn't been, I've only shared this publicly once. In the summer, I did a study with IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where we had a group of 49 people, all of which had PTSD. So they had to have PTSD to be on the study. And we were seeing, could lucid dreaming be used as a healing modality? We had one week. I wasn't sure whether we would have any lucid dreams in the week because working with a high, high tra highly traumatized group, who knows anything can happen. We had 75% of the group had a lucid dream in the one week. And of that, a high percentage of them had a healing lucid dream. So they were able to wake up in a recurring traumatic nightmare and no way. I'm not wow. really back in that trauma. I'm dreaming about it. And then some of them were able to transform it, to send love to their attackers, all of these great healing things. We got the results through. 
Now, Vishen, you've worked with scientists before, and you know that when they present their results, they're often kind of low-key about it. The scientist presents the graph, right? He says, okay, on this graph, you've got people's PTSD levels. Then you've got after the one-week study, the average PTSD score dropped to below having PTSD. It dropped below the clinical threshold, the average. Then three weeks later, our follow-up study, it was still below the average. People healed so deeply through lucid dreaming oh. that many of them did not have PTSD anymore by the end of that study. That's amazing. But and Charlie, you, you, even... teach this. you teach this in your lucid dreaming program on mind. Oh, absolutely. It's all in the quest. Yeah. And what was even more fascinating, 75% of them had a lucid dream. That crucial 25% who didn't, they still had drops in their PTSD score. Now that fried my brain. I was like, whoa, are we saying that simply mm -hmm. learning about lucid dreaming and knowing that it's a possibility is such an empowering experience for somebody who has been disempowered by PTSD, disempowered by the medication that does not work for them, disempowered by the talking therapy that has not served them, that simply learning about lucid dream is enough to drop people's PTSD scores. That blew my freaking mind. Because it means even if you haven't had lucid dreams, so people on the quest, like a lot of people on the quest have lucid dreams, but some of them get to the end of the quest, they say, oh, I haven't quite had a lucid dream yet. But they're still saying, my God, I love that it's the best quest I've done. Yeah, because the benefits of lucid dreaming, weirdly, don't actually require you have a lucid dream. Absolutely fascinating. I was just thinking about some of my experiences doing that quest. And in the first week, I learned to remember my dreams because I wasn't remembering yes. my dreams. By the second week, I learned how to interpret my dreams. I then moved on to another quest. I'm going to go back when I'm ready to go into lucid dreaming. But I have found that nightmares no longer plague me. Mm. because I, I understand contextually what's going on. I see the dream as an adventure. And if a nightmare does come, I, I know your hugging technique on how to dissolve and, and that nightmare. You've made friends with your dreams. Oh, Simply I've made friends with my dreams. The first right. two or three weeks of writing down your dreams, paying attention to your dreams. Right. You know, if a nightmare is a dream that is shouting, if you want to stop having nightmares, let right. the dream know, hey, dude, I'm listening. How? Yeah. Write that. It's, it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating when we start seeing sleep in a new way. And so yes. we have come to the end of this podcast, Charlie. I want to give a, a quick shout out to your book. It's called Wake Up to Sleep. You can find it on Amazon. You can also get it from Charlie Morley. That's C-H-A-R-L-I-E Morley, M-O-R-L-E-Y.com. And check it out. As I said, Charlie is an amazing teacher. Once you just dazzled by the way he presents information. So Charlie, uh, we're going to let you go shortly. But before that, one final question. What about blue blocker sunglasses? So many biohackers say that it's important to wear this if you're going to be interacting with screens before going to bed. What's yeah. your verdict on that? So I've got in the book, I do have a sleep hygiene tips, but they're literally at the back of the book. They're like I an see. after, they're an appendix. It is good. It definitely helps. However, changing the outer world, like trying to change the screen right. brightness, wearing blue blockers, right. stuff like that, is good, but it's short term, far better. If you can change your internal biology, sleep will happen naturally. Perfect. Because sleep is a natural phenomena that will occur in the absence of stresses that prevent it from occurring. Sort your I biology, you won't even need blue blockers. But yeah, they're good. I love that. Thank you so much, Charlie. And thank you all for joining us in the Mind Valley podcast. If you are fascinated by what we discussed today, check out Wake Up to Sleep. And if you want to learn more about lucid dreaming, go to mindvalley.com forward slash lucid mindvalley.com forward slash lucid to learn about Charlie's program. Thank you. I'm 
Vishen Lakhiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.